This last week, we began a message entitled, Four Warnings About Corrupting the Gospel. And I gave one big truth, and then we began to cover those different warnings. So here's the big truth that I shared this last week. What you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. It is not some aspects or most parts, but every aspect of your spiritual life. We saw that the gospel is central to experiencing Christ's forgiveness, for grasping the depth of God's love for us, for living as a Christian, for understanding Jesus' life, his sacrificial death, and his bodily resurrection. The gospel is key to our spiritual growth. It confronts that judgmental spirit that has a tendency to rise in all of us. It confronts an entitlement mentality. It it confronts self-centered living. We'll find that the gospel, it helps centers us when we lose our way, and it answers the major questions that we have about God, about God's nature, about God's plan, about God's perspective of humanity. So that big truth from this last week is what you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. Now, because of the centrality of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, Satan knows that one of the greatest ways that he can confuse and derail Christians, not only now, but for generations to come, is for him to distort, for him to obscure, for him to twist, or for him to completely replace the gospel in the mind of people. So in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, the Apostle Paul, he confronts individuals who are distorting the gospel, and he also confronts individuals who are believing in those distortions. So last week, we began with this one question. What are the warnings related to corrupting the gospel? And I gave just one of the four warnings, and I'm going to go back and cover that again in about the next two minutes, and from there, we will work our way through the rest of this text So the first warning that we covered this last week is we desert Christ by embracing a corrupt gospel. We saw that over in verse number six. Paul said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. To embrace a corrupted view of the gospel is not just a difference of opinion, and we need to be absolutely clear on that. This is not one of those places where you can look and say, well, that is your perspective or that is your view or that is your opinion of the text. It is God's word. The gospel is so central. It cannot be left up to individual opinions. It has to go back to what does the word of God clearly describe. So it is a desertion of Christ on this path of grace. So the verse serves as a warning to believers, to churches, to pastors, even to this very day, that we have to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. Now, why would I say that this is a warning for that? You have to remember the context. The Apostle Paul is writing believers in Corinth, or not in Corinth, but in Galatia. He's not writing to unbelievers. He is challenging believers, and he's challenging their understanding of the gospel itself. So, When the essence of the gospel is ignored, it is not long before the truths of the gospel are rejected. As I shared this last week, it's not that the true believers in Galatia had lost their salvation. 
In fact, the wording is very, very clear here. The Apostle Paul, he speaks of them as brothers in Christ in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, and in chapter 5. He also says that they have God's Spirit, chapter 3, verse 5. He calls them sons of God, chapter 4, verse 6. And he refers to them as those who know God and are known by him, chapter 4, verse 9. The issue is not, are they saved? The issue that he is challenging is their understanding of how do you live as a saved person. What does it look like on the other side of salvation? The teaching of the New Testament has always been that you begin by grace through faith and you continue by grace through faith. This is the way that Colossians 2.6 describes it. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, how did you receive him? By grace through faith. How do you walk in him? By grace through faith. So that is where we left off for this last week. So here's our question again. What is another warning about corrupting the gospel? Here's the second warning. There are some who will distort the gospel. Verse number seven. It says, which is really not another, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. All right, I need everybody to look this way for just a moment. Do not assume every pastor, every Bible teacher, and every believer is going to share an accurate view of the gospel. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm simply stating reality. Not everyone is going to share a clear view of the gospel. And it seems as though a lot of times we, we worry more about the side of who's trying to fool me. And let me just say, I don't think that there is a vast conspiracy of a lot of pastors attempting to fool people. There are some. There are some. No question about it that they are fleecing the flock. I think the issue is actually a whole lot more common and maybe more simplistic, and that is everyone comes to the Bible with certain preconceived beliefs. Now, these beliefs are those that are formed through our environment. They are formed while our church attendance and watching TV. They're formed by having conversations. They're formed by our individual perspective. They're, they're formed by our reading. Some of these beliefs are good and accurate, and some of these beliefs are incorrect, and they will hurt you in the long run. Now, if we knew which of our beliefs were incorrect, we'd probably change them. Here's the reason I say that. None of us want to be fooled. None of us like being lied to. If somebody lies to us, there's, there's an offense that comes up. We get upset with that. So if we could quickly and clearly discern what is the lie, we would reject it. We would push it back because we don't like being lied to. We, we don't like being made a fool of. But here's what happens. We take all of our preconceived ideas with us as we study the Bible. We take the good. We take the bad. We take the shallow we take the partially correct but ultimately wrong. We take all of those pieces with us as we study the Word. And it is not until the Holy Spirit begins to confront the false beliefs. Many times it is through the proclamation of Scripture. Sometimes it is through other believers, iron sharpening iron, 
Sometimes it is the Spirit of God convicts you as you're reading the Word. You're by yourself, and all you know is God stops you in your tracks and says, what you believe about this is wrong. But it is until the Holy Spirit of God confronts the false beliefs, we simply go on, listen to this, reading selectively through the Scriptures. We see what we want to see. We gravitate to those verses that support our current beliefs and we ignore the passages that don't align with what we want the Bible to say. Now, you've heard many times, especially in current days, of confirmation bias. Believers do the exact same thing when it comes to the Word. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. I grew up in a church that focused heavily, heavily, upon free will when it comes to salvation. And what I mean by that is the way it was taught, it was almost as if God has done something, but it's all you, it's you, it's you, it's you. And it was emphasized so much that when someone actually challenged me one day and said, did you know unless God calls someone, they cannot be saved? And when they said that, watch out, they even used the word election. And I was like, whoa, hold on now there. Hold on. And I instantly put up a defense. Why? Because what they said did not align with what I had been taught. I felt threatened by that. In fact, I had never even heard a single message teaching of God's calling. I had not heard messages specific to other texts that you find that speak of election, predestination, those different pieces. So when I heard that, it, it, it scared me. And here's the thing. It is imperative, absolutely imperative, that Scripture drives our beliefs instead of our beliefs driving our interpretation of Scripture. We have to be okay with Scripture being Scripture. We have to be okay with God being God. We have to keep our beliefs, hold them before God and say, God, what is right, help it to be confirmed through your word. What is wrong, challenge it and correct it so that I am walking in truth. Now, I want you to think of the context of Galatians. That is, many of these individuals are out of a Jewish background. They are steeped in the law. They are steeped in ceremony. They are steeped in ritual. That is the life that they knew. And the reason I bring that up is because when they placed faith in Jesus, they were not starting from a spiritually neutral position. It wasn't like they had no understanding, no background. It wasn't like there was a completely clean slate, no idea of God, no view of Scripture, no understanding of Old Testament covenant. Instead, this is a group of individuals who already had some background that was there. But instead of them releasing beliefs that did not align with grace, they tried to merge grace and the law together. Here's the issue. Grace and the law polar opposites they're like oil and water they don't mix it's one or it's the other so in verse number seven it tells us that these teachers were disturbing people in the churches this word disturb it means to shake back and forth to agitate or to stir up it was a word that was used for deep emotional disturbance of an unsettledness of the mind Attempting to combine law and grace together, it was shaking people up. It was causing turmoil. It was causing agitation. It was causing emotional distress. 
Did you know it was the exact same word that was used of King Herod when he found out that Jesus was born? It's the same word that described the disciples when they saw Jesus walking on water. It was the same word that is used of Jesus when he said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be agitated. Don't, don't let it be anxious here. It's the same word that's being used. These false teachers were not only stirring the people up, but they were changing and they were distorting the very gospel itself. This word distort, it means to turn something into its opposite or to reverse it. By adding even the smallest amount of the law to grace, it turns it into something completely different. Here's just a thought. The law does not moderately pollute grace. It destroys it. Grace may be rejected, but it cannot be modified. Here's a warning for all of us today. There are some who will want to distort the gospel message. So here's our warning on that. Be unbelievably careful about who you listen to, about the books that you read, who you allow to influence your life. And while we're on this path, let me add an extra one in here. Be really careful about the blogs you read. Amen. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't want to pick on one particular brand or one particular medium, but, but here's, here's the reason I would share that. There was a time in which there was a process of getting information out to the masses. And that is it took time. Many times there was oversight. There was an editing committee. There was what you might refer to as content curation. It, it, it went through a process. Now someone can have a heretical thought at 8.01, post it by 8.02 to the masses, and it goes viral by 8.05. And it moves fast. I know you guys already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Everything you see on the Internet is not true. <laughs> I just thought I would throw that out just in case somebody was wondering. So... How do you protect yourself and how do you protect those that you love from false teachings in relation to the gospel? I'm going to give you three pieces right now. First, test the spirits. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now let me give you one of the great examples from current culture. If this is one that hits close to home, I'm sorry about this, but I, I feel like it is probably the best current example that I can give. And that is, there is a lot of preaching that's happening where it's focused on what is referred to as the prosperity gospel. We're talking about gospel, distortion of gospel. And one of the greatest distortions that you're going to hear in current culture is what's referred to as the prosperity gospel. Now, among its many peculiar teachings, there is a premise that God wants all of his kids to be happy, to be rich, to be healthy, and to be prosperous. And to prime the pump of God's generosity, you need to sow a seed into that particular ministry to get God working on your behalf. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they don't encourage you to sow that same financial seed into somebody else's ministry, but it's towards that ministry. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you I believe in biblical stewardship. I believe in giving to the local church. 
I, I believe 100% you cannot outgive God. That is not even what I'm trying to say here. But I am saying that our giving is to be an act of worship, and our giving should not be done so that we can benefit by being rich on the other side. Because if that is our mentality, then here's what's going to happen. It will always put you at odds with what God's going to call you to do in that moment. If you keep your hand open, God can put plenty more in. But if you got your hand open, God will often take a lot out. And you've got to be okay with either way God is doing. And if your desire is, I'm going to sow a seed in because he's going to return it tenfold. It's just a good investment. That, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, I also want to say this. It is very easy to preach a prosperity gospel in a country that is prosperous. Go to Bangladesh and preach the same message. Show up in Haiti and preach the same message. And the audacity of some to say, if you just had enough faith, God would make you rich too. Here's, here's what you call the sniff test. If you can't preach the gospel everywhere and it be true, it's not the gospel. The gospel stands up under any crowd, any set of circumstances. So here's the second piece. Follow the Bereans' lead. Acts 17, 11. How do you protect yourself and your family from a false gospel? Follow the Bereans' lead. It says, for they received the word with great eagerness. That's a first piece. By the way, praise God, this is an eager church for the word. You all make my job easy up here. I preached in some hard churches before. I, I preached, and I'm looking out there, and I mean like camel flies are circling people's heads and eyes are rolling back in their head. And I, I just praise God for you all. I am grateful that you're excited about the word. It says that they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Here's what you do. Check what you hear against what God said. Check what you hear against what God said. Here's number three. Know the gospel for yourself. If you want to protect yourself and those that you love, know the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only way to spot the counterfeit is to know the real thing. And when you know the gospel, warning bells will go off in your mind when you hear a false gospel being proclaimed. Here's warning number three. Those who preach a different gospel will incur God's judgment and should be avoided. Notice what it says in verses 8 and 9. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Now, the Apostle Paul begins with a hypothetical situation. He, he says, but even if an angel should preach this to you, he's to be accursed. Now, it's hypothetical because an angel, a true angel from God, is not going to change the message of Christ. At the same time, he includes himself here. Or if I should preach this to you, he's saying I also should be accursed. 
what he's doing here is he is helping people see that it is the message, not necessarily the messenger, that you have to be extremely focused on. And that is, he's saying, even if an angel were to come, even if I were to change my teachings on the gospel, I'm in that same category, to be a curse. The inclusiveness of the statement shows that no messenger, regardless of how godly they seem, should ever be seen or elevated above what God has already revealed. Truth outranks credentials every time. Every teacher must be evaluated not only by what they say, but also who they are. The Apostle Paul, he moves from hypothetical to actual. He says in verse number 9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received. In verse number 8, if we should preach. In verse 9, if someone is preaching. He's going from hypothetical now to actual. The same outcome is there, there to be accursed. This word accursed, if you want to, jot it off to the side in your Bible. Write it over in a margin. Write it on some notes. It it refers to that which is devoted to destruction. It's translated as under God's wrath are doomed to hell. False teachers will incur God's judgment, and they should be avoided. Now, here's another just pause moment. It is naive to think that staying in a place with a distorted gospel will give you a greater opportunity for good in that place. Even Timothy, who was steeped in the truths of God's word, he was told, Timothy, that he was to stay away from error and to concentrate on the pure truth of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 7, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We got to pause for a perspective moment. And that is, when the text is talking about false teachers and they're to be accursed, the context is false teaching in relation to the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. This is extremely important. By adding the law to the gospel, it pollutes it, it reverses it, it, it changes it into something that is completely different. But if a pastor or a Bible teacher or a Christian friend, Maybe if they're a little off from what you see in Scripture on, say, spiritual gifts or on eschatology or on tithing or on some other point of Christian living, it does not make them a heretic. might make them a bad teacher. might mean that they have some false beliefs. But the reason I want to point that out is sometimes we can throw the word heretic around all willy-nilly. And heretic now becomes the collection point for anybody who teaches something we disagree with. They're a heretic. That is, that's not what it's about here. Paul is speaking specifically about distortions of the gospel. He's talking about people who are corrupting the foundation of the faith. That is the difference between bad teaching and heresy. That is, bad teaching is unbiblical instruction as it pertains to peripheral topics. Heresy is unbiblical instruction that undercuts the nature and the work of Christ. It is a challenge to the core tenets of the faith. Now, this might seem like a side issue, but again, might be the most important thing you're going to hear tonight. If you want to know where a person or a group stands when it comes to heresy, ask this question, what do you believe about Jesus? You will learn a lot on the other side of that question. 
What do you believe about Jesus? All right, now let's go even further into this. This this is going to be really careful here. Listen, holding shared beliefs is not the same as spiritual agreements. Let me explain it. All right. The false teachers in Galatia, they did not deny that Jesus was Messiah. They did not deny he died on the cross. They did not deny that he rose from the dead. In fact, they believed in the oneness of God. They believed in the holiness of the law. They believed in God's faithfulness to Israel, the importance of the Ten Commandments. There is nothing, based on what we understand here, that would show that they openly denied his deity, nor did they deny his humanity. Here's the point. There were pieces of commonality, but holding shared beliefs is not the same as spiritual agreement. Our agreement has to begin in the gospel. Our ability to walk together in partnership, our ability to kind of begin to let our guard down a little bit has to start with what do you believe about the gospel? Where are you at in the gospel message itself? The reason this is important is because sometimes we are very quick to jump past the first initial statements that somebody's making and say, oh, we're on the same page. They might say, well, I believe in God. Well, great, I believe in God too. I believe Jesus is Messiah. What? what? I, I believe he's Messiah too. I believe the Bible's God's word. Well, praise God, we're together. You got to keep asking questions because spiritual shared beliefs is not the same as spiritual agreements. We have to be careful that we are basing this partnership, our moving forward, on what does the gospel say. Here's warning number four. You cannot please everyone and share the gospel. It won't happen. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Truth divides. And absolute truth exposes error. When truth is being proclaimed, here's what that inevitably means. There is a right position, and there's also a wrong position. Now, sometimes... We just don't simply want to hear truth. You ever heard the statement, ignorance is bliss? Sometimes it's almost like if you can push truth off long enough, I don't have to worry about it. That's a part of why I don't watch the news right now. I feel like ignorance is bliss on some things. I just, I, I, I don't, I get enough news in other sources, but sometimes it's like the more I hear, the more it's overwhelming right there. So it's like, I'm just going to live in my bubble of ignorance for the next 15 minutes and not know about that. Here's the issue. Truth is going to divide. Now, why would I say you cannot proclaim the truth and please everyone? Why why would the gospel be offensive at all? Here's just a few reasons. The gospel challenges our pride. The gospel, it rejects the idea that our good works are enough. The gospel points out our depravity, our sinful condition. It causes us to admit our faults before a holy and a sovereign God. The gospel is not relative. It does not change based on circumstances. It it is the same message of hope for the hardened criminal as it is for the choir member. 
It is the same message that needs to go out again and again. The gospel tells us that we are far worse than we ever imagined, and God is far greater than we could even comprehend. And that is a message that can be offensive. Now, in a market-driven culture that we're in, here's where churches begin to get ourselves into trouble. Every visitor who walks through the door, every guest who comes into a church, mentally sometimes, we have to turn it off, but mentally sometimes, we can look at that person as a prospective customer. They're walking in and we're like, they're here, we got us a live one. They showed up. Have you ever invited somebody to church and you get surprised when they show up? You're like, I didn't know that was going to happen right there. It's happened to me a few times. But the focus can now become how do we keep people satisfied? If we offer this particular ministry, that'll keep them. If we have this type of worship, that'll keep them. If we preach this type of message series, that's that's what they like. That's what they'll come for. By the way, this spare thought, spare thought. I've noticed over the years when I preach expositionally, verse by verse through Scripture, I will cut the attendance by 20%. Now, here's what church growth would tell me to do. Don't preach expositionally through Scripture. But here's the problem with that. People need the Word of God, line by line, precept by precept, verse by verse. So here's what we do. We teach topically. We also teach expositionally, verse by verse. I didn't have an opportunity to have a Sunday night service in Vegas. So what I would do, I'd go in and I would preach one chapter, verse by verse. We'd come out and we would do a series. I'd go back and I'd cheap I'd teach the second chapter, come out, and we'd do another series. The reason is I wanted everyone exposed to both types of teachings. It's important. Now, the reason I bring it up again is you can have larger crowds if I teach nothing but heartfelt needs. But when you're in those dark moments where it's just you and God, here's what you need. You need the truths of God's word to come alive in your hearts. You, know, you need to know what it's grounded on. You need to understand it. When you open up the word, you need to know, how do I pull it out myself? There, there's those moments when things are difficult that you've got to do what David did. You've got to encourage yourself in the word. You've you got to know how to get in and dig it out. That's why we do the deeper teachings as well. But if you only look out and say, what do we do to get more people in? And to keep them in, sometimes you would cut part of that. It's easy also to downplay the hard truths. After reading Paul's writings and studying him for a long time, I think he would have been a raging nightmare at a church growth conference. <laughs> I do. Because at the end of the day, listen, what it takes to catch him is what it takes to keep them. And if you brought them in on poor theology, and if you got them in on Christianity light with a third less guilt, you're going to have to stay the course to keep them in. But if they came in with the word, they came in, the spirit of God drew them in, 
then here's the thing. You get a chance to have freedom and you just keep preaching the word. Keep preaching the word. Keep preaching the word. And God continues to do a work in their heart. He keeps bringing in others. You'll find that God draws people when his word is proclaimed. Truth divides. The Apostle Paul, in probably one of the boldest introductions you're going to find anywhere in the Bible, he called out false teachers. He leveled the judgment of God. And then he sarcastically, I think he sarcastically asked, does it look like I'm trying to please people? I read sarcasm in on this. I mean, if you look at what he's saying, it's like, do you think I'm trying to please people or please God? I would not be a bondservant if I were trying to please people. Truth divides. And while some people want to live a lie, and some people don't want to know truth. There's a lot of other people who are just saying, just give me truth. Just teach the word. Don't take the bark off of it. Let it come in rough. Just teach the word. I, I would rather know truth and be uncomfortable than to hear a lie and to not know I'm being deceived. The gospel is not a product that can be peddled. When you preach the gospel and you live the gospel, it will be offensive to many. But that's why the Apostle Paul gets to chapter 4, verse 16, and he says, So have I become your enemy because I have told you the truth. So here's the challenge for all of us. Will you stand for truth even if it offends some that are around you? Okay, pause. Sidebar, make sure it is the truth that is offending people and not your attitude and presentation of the truth. Sometimes we kind of take it to be a license to just go out and just start slinging at people. Like, bam, take that to the house with you. And you're like, I, can't, I don't know why they're all offended with me. I'm just sharing truth. Well, you, you blasted them. Let's work on the presentation a little bit right there. It, it, there's not, people can handle truth. The question is often, how are we presenting that to them? God challenged me a number of years ago on the fact that you can preach truth with a smile on your face just as much as you can with a scowl. Truth divides. I had a few other things to share. I'm just going to keep that between me and Jesus right now. Sometimes you don't know where it's going, and I've learned over the years, if I don't know for sure, we're just going to hit the pause button right there. We'll, we'll let God marinate that in my spirit, and I'll write it in my notes for next time. All right, so will you stand for truth even if it offends others? That's what we're called to do. We have a gospel message that is still able to save men, women, boys, and girls. A gospel message that brings good news to those that are hurting. A gospel message that helps people understand their created purpose. A gospel message that when people receive it, it radically transforms their life for the better. But in order to share that message, sometimes it'll mean that it seems offensive to those who are around us. So what are those four warnings that we find in this text 
about corrupting the gospel. First, we desert Christ by embracing a corrupt gospel, verse 6. Second, there are some who will distort the gospel, verse 7. Third, those who preach a different gospel will incur God's judgment and should be avoided, verses 8 and 9. And number four, you cannot please everyone and preach the gospel, verse number 10. Know the gospel, study the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel. Next week, we're going to tackle the next two verses. And we're going to be answering the question, what is truth? Now you might say, Paul, I got that. God's word is truth. It is. We live in a culture right now where truth is attacked, it is ignored, it is questioned, it is rejected, it is dismissed, and it is reclassified with confusing new adjectives. Situational truth, my truth, your truth, relative truth. We need to be unbelievably clear on what is truth. Also, starting in September, this is kind of a commercial break, but starting in September, we are going to introduce a verse of the month for our church to go through and to meditate upon and to memorize together. And the reason we're wanting to introduce this, there is something beautiful that happens when the body of Christ is growing together and meditating on the same passage. I've, I've been using little cards for a number of years. And I'll simply write down a verse. And here's what I try to tell people when it comes to memorizing Scripture. If you make your goal to memorize it, most of the time you'll stop before you start. You'll give yourself an excuse. You're like, I just don't have that great a memory. I have a hard time memorizing things. Here's what I want to encourage you all to do as these verses are going to be released. Just read them. Each day, multiple times a day, sit with the passage. Just read over it. Think over it. I, I put these cards and I carry them around with me. Sometimes I'll have them in my, my truck as I'm driving down the road. And you'll look off to the side and God will remind you of that passage. Here's what you'll notice. Your mind will always gravitate to what you've been contemplating. If you've been thinking about fear all day and there's nothing occupying your mind, your mind goes immediately back to fear. But when you're thinking about the word of God and your mind's not occupied, it's amazing how quickly the Spirit of God brings that verse right back in, and you can just enjoy it in the presence of God. That's going to be starting in September. Also, there's going to be a book of the month. You're like, man, we got all sorts of study. Well, this is more stuff. No, we, we want to do this to bless people, to bless us. There's going to be truths that are going to go through in these books and undergird and add reinforcement to the messages that you're hearing on Sunday. Here's just an opportunity to learn. It's going to be good. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close out this evening's service, God, we are grateful for the way that you continue to move and how you work in our lives. God, we recognize that it is a joy, it is a blessing to be able to gather together and to worship and to study your word with brothers and sisters in Christ. God, in this last week, we are reminded again that there's brothers and sisters around the world who would give anything for this opportunity. So as we close tonight, we want to pray for those brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. 
We want to pray for that country. God, we want to pray that, that you bring protection, that you would bring order out of chaos. God, we want to pray again for your hand of protection over this city, for those that are caring for the needs of others. And God, we also pray as we close out this service that you would wake us up early in the morning, that you would prompt us throughout the day with this thought, come to know me. God, help us to have a burning desire to know you. And Lord, we will thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Hope you have a wonderful evening.